Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Biota. I'm your host, Phil Gibson, and today I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Seth. How are you doing today? Hello, everyone. I'm Seth. Glad to be here today, and I'm doing pretty well. So today we're going to be taking a look into the fascinating world of biofilms. That's right, biofilms. These mysterious communities of microorganisms are all around us, often hidden in plain sight, but they are there. So whether you've heard of them or not, we guarantee that you've encountered them at least once in your daily life. In this episode, we're going to be uncovering some of the secrets of biofilms, from how they can impact our health to how they might help us find life on distant planets or asteroids. To do this, we'll be talking to experts who study biofilms, exploring some of the real-world examples that are close to home, and others that take us to the extreme environments you might find deep inside the Earth as well as outer space. So, I want you all to get ready to be amazed and maybe a little bit grossed out as we dive headfirst into the slimy, sticky, and definitely curious world of biofilms. Alright, the logical starting place for this episode is to make sure we know what a biofilm is. To do that, we spoke with Dr. Brad Borley from Colorado State University. So the most simple definition of a biofilm is a cluster of bacterial cells embedded in a matrix. So the matrix itself is a key characteristic of the biofilm. So the matrix has various compositions depending on the the different bacteria that you're looking at. And so you can have DNA and RNA that is secreted outside of the cell that uh, forms this protective shell around this community of bacteria. You can also have lipids. You also have various proteins that are found inside of that matrix. There's also things like exopolysaccharides, which are polymers of sugars. Um, And depending on the various strains of bacteria, the composition of those sugars and how they're connected to each other are altered. And that gives it kind of each different biofilm has kind of a different composition. So that's what biofilms are, a community of bacteria in a protective extracellular matrix. And recent studies have suggested that approximately 80% of bacterial life on Earth lives as a part of a biofilm. It is important to note that these biofilms don't just form spontaneously. Although the fine details of the biofilm formation cycle may be different depending on the source you look at, the same major themes are always present. The first major steps are attachment and colonization. You see these free-floating planktonic cells that the bacteria exist as, they've got to attach to a surface. And if that surface they attach to is a favorable site, well then they will. And then during this time, they may start to lose things like their flagella as they prepare to, well, you know, hunker down for a while and start to produce a small amount of this matrix that Dr. Borley mentioned. And then they're forming what we call a microcolony at this stage. Exactly. And the next major step that we see is called maturation. And this is where the bacteria really ramp up the production of that extra polymeric substances that are crucial for the matrix that Dr. Borley mentioned. This is also where a phenomenon called quorum sensing occurs. Quorum sensing is when the bacteria in the matrix release all these signaling molecules that impact the behavior and even the gene expression of one another. There's a threshold of these signaling molecules that must be met for these changes to occur, and so you really need a lot of bacteria to be producing these molecules in one place for these changes to happen. A place like a biofilm? Exactly. And that's one reason why we see these unique differences in prokaryotes and biofilms versus their planktonic forms. The last major step of the biofilm life cycle is dispersion. 
Now this happens whenever the bacteria are going to leave the biofilm and go back to being a planktonic cell. This can be caused by a variety of different things like, you know, maybe there's not enough nutrients or something in the environment changes or a number of other factors. But this step and how it can be caused or induced is a main focus of a lot of research, especially in medicine. And we should also note that these planktonic cells, they can go back to being a biofilm whenever, you know, conditions are favorable again, something we found pretty interesting. Now that we know about the life cycle of the biofilm, the next thing we need to know is where they live. And to find them, you don't have to go very far. All you have to do is open your mouth because, and we mean no offense, there's probably a biofilm in your mouth right now. Actually, dental plaque is probably the first biofilm that was described. And so if you go back to the work of Antoni van Leeuwenhoek and you start to look at some of the, the stuff that was published in 1680-ish, um, some might credit him with, you know, discovering biofilms and the key hall or the major hallmark of a biofilm. Uh, one of the things that he observed when he was studying uh, bacteria for the first time is he took plaque from his mouth and his gums and he looked at it under the microscope and he treated that with uh, vinegar, which is acetic acid. And so and one of the things that he described as this extreme tolerance to the, the vinegar of the bacteria that were aggregates as opposed to the bacteria that were swimming around individually that would die. And that's just one example of a medical biofilm. As far as biofilms go, oral biofilms are fairly benign and they really don't cause too many problems as long as you brush and floss regularly. But biofilms can form in other places where they can cause some real problems. For example, medical devices that have bacteria on them when they go into someone's body can develop a biofilm. But that's not the only way that they develop. Let's let Dr. Boyle explain a little bit more. Um, if there are bacteria in the body that are circulating, um, so one good example would be, let's say you go to the dentist and you get your teeth cleaned. That's going to dump a whole bunch of bacteria into your bloodstream, which your body is then going to be able to eradicate. But let's say you have a medical device implanted somewhere and some of those bacteria reach that medical device, then they can set up shop and start to build a biofilm to protect themselves from um, the immune system. So what we've learned is that biofilms can form on surfaces of the body like teeth, but they can also form on contact lenses or on devices like the parts used for a hip replacement, a catheter or a stent implanted in the body where environmental conditions are suitable for them to establish and grow. Another thing that the researchers we spoke to, you know, really stressed to us was that biofilms aren't inherently bad. Biofilm formation is just something bacteria do to survive. If you're a bacterium in a stream, forming a biofilm may help you attach to a rock. And then instead of chasing down your food and wasting energy, you can just take it in as it floats by. Also, biofilms in our gut are essential to our survival because some of the molecules in our diet that we need couldn't be synthesized without them. So while biofilms get a lot of attention for the harm that they can do, many are essential for our own health and survival. Some biofilm researchers are even studying if there are any beneficial uses for them. You know, another interesting thing about biofilms is that they can also form in places where you might not think of life being able to exist. And one of those places is deep inside the earth. Microbiologists have found bacterial biofilms growing and thriving in the hot, deep, wet areas of mines and caves. 
To tell us more about that, we have to travel to the bottom of the cave to the field site where Dr. Dave Bergman from Black Hills State University conducts his research. My own research is uh, in biofilm communities in a deep underground lab which had been developed from a former uh, gold mine, the Homestake gold mine. For the most part, you need to uh, travel down in uh, an elevator known as a cage uh, with a lot of other people and uh, uh, going way down uh, into the Earth's crust. Uh, you know, as you watch the different levels fly by, you know, the partially open door that the cage has, and you see the, the different tunnels whiz by uh, as you descend. It takes uh, perhaps a few minutes, maybe down to uh, 20 minutes if you're going to the lower levels. It was a place where one could easily access uh, microbes in deep underground rocks and in deep underground aquifers, uh, which contain really a very unique microbial communities. And many of those are biofilms. There's some very unique interfaces there where the sort of warm, uh, anoxic water with uh, reduced inorganic molecules as well as methane uh, come in contact with the oxygenated air in the tunnels. And there you can get actually very luxuriant biofilm development that is certainly relevant uh, because on uh, places like Mars or uh, perhaps the moons of Jupiter, uh, any life that is present is going to be in deep underground aquifers. Uh, and probably isolated from oxygen of any sort. So uh, some of the deep aquifers are, I think, a, a reasonable proxy for some habitats that might be encountered in uh, extraterrestrial habitats. So I didn't expect this story to take us into caves, but I've been in some before, and thinking back, I can see how you know what I thought was just a slime on the wall was probably actually a biofilm. However... Biofilms in space, that's something completely out of left field, and I want to know a lot more about that. Well, Seth, while they haven't found biofilms on asteroids or planets yet, they have found them in space. So to learn more about that, let's talk to Dr. Borley some more. So we have a lot of uh, aerospace industry here in Colorado where I'm located, and they try really hard to manufacture you know, anything that goes into space so that it's free of microbial contamination. But one problem we have is if we want to put humans on some of these uh, spacecraft, um, we can't eradicate all of the bacteria on and in a human because it's so core to our functioning uh, as, as, an, as like a, a multi-species organism ourselves. Anywhere that you go, you're going to be leaving biofilm behind, uh, literally. And so uh, on the International Space Station, uh, they've been really concerned about biofilms because one of the things that people have learned early on is that when we put organisms in space, they become more susceptible to disease, whether it's plants or humans or animals. 
And there's lots of various regions, reasons for why uh, organisms become immunocompromised in space. But this idea that, okay, so these people are bringing up what would normally be a benign bacteria that could live in a biofilm, um, and it's setting up shop in space. And so then that makes these people more susceptible to basically encountering these bacteria through different routes um, that would cause them to get sick. From everyone we've talked to and all of our background research, it's pretty clear that biofilms are everywhere, all around us. It's also clear to me that they are a complex collection of many different bacterial species. That brings us to our last question. How does a microbiologist figure out who exactly is in a biofilm? As someone who has worked in various medical laboratories, the job of the microbiology department in the lab is to identify the bacteria causing an infection. But I never have cultured a multi-species biofilm in the lab. So to answer this question, we spoke with one more scientist, Dr. Pankaj Marotra from the University of the People. He worked with Dr. Bergman to identify the species in the mine biofilm that we discussed. We asked him to describe the general processes that they use to identify the species of bacteria in a biofilm. And here's what Dr. Marotra told us. So the first step is to collect the biofilms. Collecting, you know, by scrapping, uh, adding that to a buffer, collecting them into water bottles or the sterile bottles and bring them back to the laboratory. So the first uh, most important step is the collection. The second step comes up is called culturing. So we use different type of culturing method, which are culturing dependent, culturing independent. So we use a certain medium to allow certain type of uh, microorganisms to grow. And that way we are able to identify some of the favorable microorganisms which will be supported by a specific medium. The next step comes is to extract the genomic DNA from those cells. And so what is done is we centrifuge those cells and then we collect the palate. That palate, we use uh, certain buffers or we can use some kits to extract the genomic DNA. And this is the major hardest step to extract the genomic DNA because all the biofilms are going to have a different uh, structure of the cell wall. So breaking those cell walls and extracting the genomic DNA becomes a challenge. But uh, with time developing different pH uh, to break the cell wall and processes to extract the genomic DNA and purifying it becomes easier. We start with uh, looking at the 16S RNA sequences and, and we target a different microbial community using a genomic approach. And that genomic approach gives us a variety of sequences of 16S RNA from different bacterial communities. And that way we may be able to identify from, uh, I would say from hundreds to thousands of bacterial communities which are different at the level of 16S RNA sequence. Wow, it's, it's just awesome to see how molecular techniques are being used more and more in almost all facets of biology and microbiology. Well, I, mean, I think my brain is getting full. This is a lot of information about biofilms. I mean, I thought this was going to be a fairly simple topic, but it's a whole lot more than I expected. I am right there with you, Phil. 
I'd mainly envision that a biofilm is basically like bacteria growing on an agar plate, you know, in a petri dish. I mean, I've cultured and isolated multiple species from a single wound swab before, but biofilms are a lot more than that. We don't see the real interactions that are occurring between all these different species unless we're looking at a biofilm. Absolutely, Seth. I mean, I'd never even thought about how biofilms are just everywhere all around us, on everything. I'd never even thought of them as being these complex communities of organisms that are literally sticking together and thriving and surviving on different surfaces. So, as we wrap this up, I was wondering, Phil, what was the most interesting thing that you learned about during our research? Well, for me, it's just this idea of biofilms in space. And I think a lot of us imagine extraterrestrial life looking something like us or maybe, you know, an alien from a science fiction film. But I'd never really thought about looking at slime on a rock or, or the wall of a cave and saying, hey, that might be like what we find on Mars or an asteroid or Dagobah or how maybe even in the early days of the space program. I mean, I remember how they quarantined the returning astronauts because they didn't know if they would be bringing any bacteria or diseases back. You know, that seemed unnecessary for a while and they stopped doing it, but maybe it wasn't really all that far-fetched after all. Yeah, I definitely thought about that too. Especially, you know, what about the bacteria that are on the probes that we sent to Mars or even deep space? We're possibly spreading bacteria that could form biofilms to survive in all those places. And yeah, we could be seeding, you know, life on other planets just by sending out bacteria from Earth. Okay, how about you? What did you find most interesting? Well, not to focus on the negatives of biofilms, but as someone with a background in healthcare, I think about the challenges that biofilms pose for the field of medicine is something we really ought to think about and dig into. I mean, we must ask, is how we even currently study bacteria accurate? I mean, instead of nice, clean agar plates, maybe we should be culturing bacteria in polymicrobial communities. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. I was at a seminar recently, and the scientists described how they're thinking about biofilms and, and how they can study them better, not only to understand what they do, but just the basics of bacterial life. I mean, they're actually aiming to create new culture media that would effectively mimic how these biofilms form and how they would be clinically important. Another thing is, we maybe ought to shift our whole perspective on how we treat bacteria and biofilms. Currently, we have a very reactive approach to treatment. That may be things like antibiotics, removing infected medical implants. But you know, I wonder, what if we were more proactive? During the research of this episode, we learned from Dr. Borley how biofilms do not form on shark skin, even though they're in an ocean that's just teeming with bacteria. And so they're now trying to learn, why is that the case? Who knows? Maybe we'll have shark skin textured medical implants in the future, or at least, you know, coatings that are derived from the chemicals found in their skin. You know, it's really strange to just think about how we could get a biofilm forming in a space station or at the bottom of a cave, but not on a shark. That is interesting. Okay, everybody, that wraps up another thought-provoking episode of Biota. We hope you've enjoyed this deep dive into the captivating world of biofilms as much as we have. It's been an incredible journey. We've explored the fascinating science behind biofilms, their impacts on health, and their relevance to our environment. Biofilms might even be part of the life that we find beyond Earth. Uh, we want to be sure to thank all of the people who've joined us. So Dr. Borley, Dr. Bergman, Dr. Marotra, thank you so much for sharing your stories and shedding light on these microbial communities. I also want to thank Dr. Marotra for suggesting this topic for an episode to us. I mean, it's really grown on me. Me too, Phil. As we conclude today's episode, we also want to thank all of our listeners for joining us on this adventure. Your support and interest in biology keeps us inspired. 
Remember to subscribe to Biota if you haven't already. You don't want to miss any of our upcoming episodes. And also, don't forget to leave us a review and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. Thanks again for being a part of our biofilm journey. Until next time, I'm Seth Higby. And I'm Phil Gibson. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and take very good care of your DNA. Stay curious, everyone. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. All opinions expressed are those of the author alone. Thank you.